folks, this is Christian Haynes, one of the managing editors of Gamers with Glasses, and in this episode of the GWG Interview Show, I was lucky enough to talk to Jesper Jewell. Jesper Jewell is a scholar who studies video games and a professor at the Royal Danish Academy of Fine Arts. He's written books such as A Casual Revolution, Reinventing Video Games and Their Players, which looks at how mobile games have changed where, when, how, and even why we game. He's also written The Art of Failure, an essay on the pain of playing video games, which grapples with the pain involved in game overs and other ways of losing at games. He's also a game designer and developer who's experimented with casual games, conceptual games, and multiplayer games. We brought Jesper on to discuss his most recent book, Handmade Pixels, Independent Video Games and the Quest for Authenticity, a book that tells a history of indie games that runs from the late 1990s to the present. We cover a lot of ground in our conversation, talking about things like how we define an indie game in the first place, what happens when platforms for indie games like Flash disappear, and whether or not the question, but is it really a game, is a productive one. We hope you enjoy the show. Hi, folks. I'm happy to be joined by Jesper Jewell, who is, you know, Skyping or rather Zooming in. Skyping, I think, is an old fashioned technology these days from Copenhagen. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Jesper, why don't you tell us just a little bit about yourself, introduce yourself. Yeah, so my business card says I'm a video game theorist. And so what that means to me is probably like that I'm, I come from a kind of humanist background. So, so what I care about in a way is what's meaningful to humans, right? And so what, the reason I started writing about video games is that I was kind of fascinated about how they were kind of interesting and me, it felt meaningful in all kinds of different ways, but which I just felt that the kind of theories I've been learning while I was studying kind of didn't make any sense for explaining why you'd play like an, an abstract casual game or, or something like this. And so, so I got really interested into this kind of question of figuring out what to say about video games or how to understand how they, how they worked, right? And so I, I did that a few different places. I, I did a PhD. Uh, at the IT University of Copenhagen, and that I've also been teaching at MIT and at New York University. And now I'm back in Copenhagen at the Royal Danish Academy, where we run a master's program called Visual Game and Media Design. Um, and so I also have an interest in developing games. I've worked as a, as a kind of game developer and as a game, game programmer for, for some, some years. So that's kind of also part of the kind of package for me. And, and so that's Anyway, you could say what's interesting to me is kind of kind of figuring out like the the kind of connections between these kind of very big theories about kind of video game history or or the details of how Unity implements something kind of very specific to to this kind of feeling of of playing a game and how how something kind of is, is kind of meaningful or can be interpreted in all kinds of ways, right? And so so to me, the, all of those kind of connections are, are kind of interesting. Great, I think one of the the most vital things about game studies right now are some of those interconnections between being able to do design and development on the one hand, on the other hand, uh, you know, we sometimes end up calling critical theory or cultural studies, or yeah. like you said, a humanistic study of games. And so it's great that you have this opportunity uh, at the Real Academy to be able to bridge those. Really great. So we like to start off the interviews uh, for Gamers with Glasses relatively uh, light with just asking what you happen to be playing right now, <laughs> or if there's anything you're playing that you happen to be excited about. Well, I mean, I think I'm, I'm like one of those people who has an infinite uh, playlist in a way of things that I'm not quite finished with. Uh, but I think that what I'm probably playing right now, I'm playing something with my kids, like Control, and we got back to kind of Viva Piñata. I think they're, they're big enough to find that kind of interesting. I was been trying to catch up with Red Dead Redemption uh, 2. <laughs> uh, I was been playing the smaller kind of games like uh, Moving Out and what's it called, the Wilmot's Warehouse or something, right? And then I'm also like a um, like independent, independent game festival judge. So I was just kind of playing like tons of little kind of interesting kind of new games. And to, to me, that's kind of always kind of exciting to see 
both to see like like the kind of new games that are clearly kind of kind of coming up and then also like the kind of the kind of ex experiments that don't actually make it in some way. I think to me that's that's just always kind of fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't have the experience of being an independent game judge, but whenever, you know, Steam does an indie festival or even Xbox has started doing these indie festivals, I love just going around playing even sometimes 10 to 20 minutes of a game, if that's all I have, and just seeing yeah. what mechanics they introduce. And sometimes the failures are the most interesting things, you know, because they, they're trying something strange or uh, out of the box, perhaps. Yeah, definitely. That's great. Yeah, we actually and just I think, did And I think in a way that's, uh, so, so I think perhaps also the, the kind of current situation, of course, one where, which is kind of weird that, that this whole, this is whole history of ex experiments with kind of, kind of alternative controllers and all these kind of fun things that you're touching. And that, that's kind of sense, will, will that ever happen again? I think that's, that's a kind of, kind of question, right? So, so all of this, like make, making weird physical controllers that a hundred people are touching. So even like, and even assuming the current pandemic ends, will that will we co go to a situation where we are kind of comfortable, like kind of sort of casually infecting each other with like the flu and and the cold? And so that's kind of, that's kind of interesting thing to me, right? No, it is interesting. I mean, this is one of the things that the historical contingency, or just like the historical quality of mm -hmm. video games as artifacts, uh, are so present and so much maybe more rapid in some senses than other media. I'm, I'm trained as a literary scholar and uh, mm -hmm. you know I've published more on literature than probably any other media. Uh, and the safety of the book form, right? I mean, you can do a lot of different things with a book, but most cases you don't have to worry about the platform in which you're gonna read mm -hmm. it uh, disappearing. There's a whole different story about fan fiction perhaps that could be told there. But for the most part, I don't have to worry about how am I going to read Mark Twain in two years? Yeah, right? Whereas I, I might have to worry about how I'm going to play a PSP game uh, yeah. in a couple of years, or for that matter, a PS Vita game uh, or a PS3 game because PS3 store, and I want to talk about this later, but PS3 store is now going offline. And there's a lot of open questions about what that's going to mean for people that yeah. transition to digital uh, with that generation of console. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. But one of the reasons I really wanted to talk to you this month in particular is we're running a series of articles called History's Arcades. Um, in fact, I think it's going to be publishing an article later today on Kentucky Route Zero by uh, my the other managing editor at the site, Roger Whitson. And we have been thinking about and talking about just how video games are historical, how they reckon with history, but also how we tell the history of video games. Hmm. Um, and I know that I'm not the only person that's found uh, handmade pixels, uh, independent video games and the quest for authenticity to be immensely useful for a very difficult topic, namely telling the history hmm. of this very disparate scene that we call indie games, right? Yeah. Uh, and I like, uh what you do in this book a lot and not just because we recently had a podcast on indie games in which my argument coincided with your argument and the other people's were arguing against my argument so not just because it justified what i had to mm -hmm. say but also because i think you managed to have a number of different perspectives on it and yet still cohere and so I guess what I would like to start um, with is the kind of background of the book or what were the experiences that brought you to write this book? I think obviously your experience as a judge for independent game festivals, your experience with game jams, maybe you could tell us just a little bit about what brought you to write this particular book, Handmade Pixels. Yeah, I think perhaps, I think a driving force for me is often like, like finding something I kind of don't understand or can't kind of find a way to explain. And I think perhaps around 2010, I mean, I had been aware of people using the term kind of independent games and also been aware of something like the Independent Game Festival, which had been going on for a while. But I guess I think around 2000 and, and, and kind of 10, I kind of had kind of had this moment that there was something I'd kind of missed, right? That, that actually something had kind of been brewing for a while that a lot of the kind of traditional complaints we had about this, say like the AAA industry, uh, being kind of too conservative and only making the same games and only making games for kind of young men and so on. That that actually was being kind of challenged by kind of a wave of, of kind of smaller, kind of more experimental games, right? And so then the questions then, then 
I actually like to ask these kind of unanswerable questions in a way, to, just because it's usually interesting to figure out what, how, why they had to answer. So, so to me, the first question was just this kind of, well, do independent games actually have anything in common, right? Is it just like a, a random term that people are using or not, right? And so then, then what I do is just kind of to sit down and just like look at a, a number of games that are called independent, right, and figure out if they had kind of anything in common. And the kind of initial spark for me was just kind of realizing that actually there was something kind of pretty common between most of the games that were promoted as independent, namely that they use what I ended up calling independent style, right? That they use your modern fancy computer to emulate anything but your modern fancy computer, right? So your modern fancy computer is not used to do 3D, but to emulate kind of 2D, pixels or to emulate kind of hand something hand-drawn or children's books or kind of voxels like weird old kind of technologies or just or, or kind of clay just anything except kind of modern 3d right and so to me that was the kind of spark like realized oh okay there there is even though people are saying that all of this stuff has kind of nothing in common that there actually is something kind of going on here right and then that kind of then i, I kind of started kind of thinking about also as I talk about in the book, also my own kind of trajectory kind of adjacent to some of this stuff, right? So like going to kind of early game jams and, and kind, of, kind of helping organize game jams and, and trying to think about how video games can be something a bit more kind of, kind of experimental and more kind of interesting and more perhaps also in some sense, some sometimes literary than, than they had kind of traditionally been. And so then the kind of book is kind of that journey for me trying to figure out like, well, where does this kind of indie stuff come from? Do they have anything in common? Like, why do they often refer to these kind of older visual styles? Like, what, what's even the, the kind of the point of that, right? And so then the book is just kind of my way of, of trying to kind of kind of figure that out, right? And, and the way I, I, one of the core ways I went about it is, is to look at festivals, right? And so, so this is what you might call an institutional history of an art form, right? That, that I'm... I'm looking at how certain institutions, such as like the Independent Game Festival, Amaze in, in Berlin and Indicate, and kind of universities and kind of critics kind of shape this idea of what an independent game game is. And so, so that to me was the kind of interesting thing, kind of try to figure that, figure that out and then also try to kind of to realize that this was something that actually kind of changed over time. And so, yeah, so it's born out of like the fascination with kind of playing all these kind of weird games and also going to game jams, making stuff, and then trying to figure out like a language for talking about it and then figuring out like, well, yeah, what, what is this thing? And to me, that's always interesting, like kind of what, what's going on in a way is an interesting question to me. Right. And, and one of the things that's interesting about this book, too, um, and I think it speaks to this complication of do they share something in common? Can we say that there's a shared set of qualities that define an indie game. But one of the things that, you know, you end up doing to kind of navigate that problem is you end up telling the history of the concept of indie games as much mm -hmm. as you tell the history of any specific indie games. Um, what's at stake with that? Like, why, why do it that way? I think it's productive, but I want to hear what brought you to doing it that way, I suppose. Well, I think you'd say, I think one thing with, with video games, I think that that people don't always understand is that there are a lot of ideas in video games. And so those ideas are not just that are like, hey, I have this cool game, co game concept ideas, but also in a way, ideas about like kind of what a video game is, is supposed to be. And I think you could you certainly think of, look at the history of video games as one, which is also a history of changing ideas. The same way you kind of naturally assume that say like film history is full of ideas and so on. And so I think that that to me was was something that was would be kind of worthwhile to actually kind of sit down and try to to look at, at ideas and things like kind of manifestos where people are say like, like video games are uh, video games are wrong the, the game industry is doomed we need to do this other thing so anything like that where people are making these kind of really strong claims for for what video games kind of should be and so then then it was just interesting to to frame that to 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 apply that to the idea of indie games and to see, try to kind of look at all these kind of historical sources I can find for people saying, this is what indie games are, this is what indie games should be, right? And then to say that, that well, so it was pretty clear quickly when you start looking at that people kind of widely disagree about what it is, right? But at the same time, indie and independent also these kind of magic terms, right? Where, where even though people disagree about 
what it is, they'll still have very strong ideas about whether it's good or bad, right? So people will, will be like kind of strongly pro-indie, even if they're not sure what it is, or strongly against it, right? And so then that's kind of interesting to me is then that like to trace that history. And I looked a lot about like different speeches people have been giving uh, uh, about like what, what is indie, what should indie, indie be? And then especially about, about how the different festivals had kind of selected what were the best indie games at a different at, at, at different times? And of course, you can say the point of this is also to say that when you make something like an independent game festival, it's not just that you are selecting the best independent games, right? You're also telling people what an independent game is in the first place, right? So that that's kind of the one of the roles of kind of institutions, right? And so, um, so uh, sometimes I like to write things which are sort of kind of definitional or very much from my point of view. And in this case, I, I was a bit more interested in just kind of kind of looking at the history of other people's ideas. And so there I interviewed like 20 different, 21 different people like game designers and, mm -hmm. and kind of festival organizers and so on to get their take on both like what, is, what does indie mean and what, what, what were they doing and what's, what's the kind of nature of the field, right? And so, what I ended up doing and it, it kind of following that is also to kind of realize that that as you might expect, right, that that the history of the idea of indie had actually changed a lot over time. And so that's I think that's one of the things where you can you can start looking at if you if you do this kind of actually saying what are people actually saying at different times, right? And then especially pairing it with the kind of games that were prominent at at, at particular moments, moments in time. And then I ended up kind of saying, well, actually, of course, not only is it true that people disagree what, about what indie is? Uh, they also have certain things that tend to say, and I think we'll discuss this in a moment, for example, indie games are often promoted as being authentic. And there are also certain kind of patterns in the kind of game design, often about kind of rejecting or making sure that your game doesn't look like a big budget AAA game. But then in addition to that, I, I borrowed this thing from, from this film theorist called G.F. King, uh, this idea of three different kinds of indie. And so I think this to me was kind of pretty enlightening, right? That to me that was the question, like what's going on, or like why why can nobody agree about what what indie is? But then I borrowed this thing from him, where it distinguishes between the three kinds of indie. So one in, is indie in a financial sense. So this is like the normal notion of indie, right? Somebody who who is kind of making the game on their own dime or is not beholden to anybody. And so then the second thing is kind of Indian in an aesthetic sense. So, so the moment you start seeing kind of games, which actually have a different aesthetic sense of, of course you can say like in the visual style, but might also be in the gameplay or, or like a smaller set of mechanics or what have you, than like a big budget game. And so that, I think this is what we start seeing early on with games like Gish and, and later Braid and so on. And then, uh, that kind of switched uh, around in the kind of early early aughts to to what I call a cultural independence or what G.F. King calls cultural independence, like where where people say that well the game is not only just like a a different game or a better game, but that it actually has a larger cultural value, right? So that say like um, and that could be any number of things, right? So it might be you can have an argument saying like kind of AAA games are too violent. I want to make a game about something that's kind of positive, that brings something kind of positive, positive into the world, right? That might be one way of doing it. It could also just be that we, we have a, our company, in our company, everybody's paid the same salary, for example. And when we have kind of, we have kind of parental leave and we have, have good working conditions, right? So that might also be in a way, a way of signaling cultural independence, right? That the way the game is made is more kind of positive or wholesome than others. Uh, it might also, you could also have a like diversity argument that, that video games have been made by a very, very narrow slice of the population. Like now we want to have games that represent a broader part of the population. Or you can also have, have cultural independence where it's a kind of political argument. So say like I refer to, to um, Paolo Perugini's game Unmanned, which is kind of both a criticism of, of, the, of the military and also a criticism of of the video game industry or video games being close to too close to kind of military technology. And so to me, that was kind of what, what kind of became kind of interesting, right? To see that there were actually, there were, of course it had changed, right? Like the notion of what indie was, uh, but that also actually followed some kind of pretty, pretty clear patterns, right? From the nominal indie to, to kind of just indies, indie games, which are kind of different to indie games 
which you kind of imbued with a kind of larger kind of meaning, right? Mm-hmm. And so, so to me, that's the kind of stuff you, you figure out with you if you actually kind of follow the ideas or follow the kind of arguments that, that you have been making, right? So that that become that people have been making. So that that becomes a way to kind of understand kind of history and also to understand that kind of game design is not just some random technical discipline, right? So it's it's also yeah, kind of cultural expression and all kinds of ideas go into kind of making games. And to me, that's kind of pretty, I think that's an important point to me. So if I understand your argument correctly in the book and in what you just said, then part of the reason you end up dating uh, the emergence of the indie game to 98, 99, 1998, 1999 is in part because yes, of course, you can say that there are these traits that pre-existed that, right? We think of you know, even in software doing Doom as a shareware game, mm-hmm. right? After breaking away from another company. I mean, all the tantamount markers of what could be called an indie game. And yet there's no kind of self-conception of themselves as indie developers in the way that we would think of it now. In other words, there had to be some kind of cultural platform in a way that also reframes something like financial independence or even mm. just kind of like a certain set of material conditions in order for the category of the indie game to emerge and take on its own kind of life. And I think one of the crucial kind of, you know, maybe we could call it the connective tissue in your book uh, and in your history of indie games is this notion of a quest for authenticity, right? Mm. This pursuit of, you're careful to say it's not a pursuit of purity necessarily. It can be, but it doesn't have to be. But this quest for something uh, independent in spirit uh, in the indie game actually becomes definitive in the history of indie games, right? In order for there to be a history of indie games in the material sense, for indie games to have a history, there had to be this pursuit, this quest in a sense. Maybe you could talk a little bit more about what this quest is and also what you see as the advantages and also disadvantages of it, because I think you're careful to mm. take a kind of measured back and forth tone regarding that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you'd say just to, but in terms of tone, right. So that, that in a way was the, the kind of original kind of challenge when you write a, a book like this. So, so in a way you want to just write the, the happy story, right. You just want to write about like in the bad old days, there were these kind of big evil companies and now, these kind of young renegades are making a better world, right? Uh, but also, it, it just felt kind of important to just think a bit more kind of kind of in detail about some of the kind of dynamics that, that were kind of happening, right? And so, so the word authenticity or the, the idea of authenticity is a kind of pretty broad one, and I just it just came from kind of looking at the kind of rhetoric that people were applying to to indie games, and and it it usually followed this kind of logic about that being a kind of big, big industry that was in a way kind of too commercial, kind of too conservative, uh, too unable to make any kind of interesting or new. And then this idea that there had to be something kind of alternative, right? And so, so you can see the idea of uh, the concept of authenticity is something you find in, in lots and lots of different situations, right? You find it like a lot in, in music, right? So, so it used to be, for example, that the kind of rock music <laughs> was, see, was seen as a, a authentic alternative to pop music. I think that's a long time ago already, right? That you had punk music that was the authentic alternative to, to kind of rock music and so on. And in, in things like hip hop, you have also like endless discussions about what, what's kind of authentic authentic hip hop and so on. So so in a way, authentic is, authenticity is sometimes a kind of negative thing. So it means that you're not, you don't have all these negative properties, right? You're not controlled by finance. You're not controlled by greed. You're not just simply aping something. Something it can be a kind of romantic concept, right? If you're doing something that's kind of from the heart, or or something that's kind of from from, from kind of passion, right? It's, it's something that's kind of pure, pure and real, and so on. And and you can say I think it's something that you can, it also when you think about it like this, it kind of also explains a bit like why why it makes sense to place like indie is coming in the like late 1990s, right? So in the early kind of computer game. Uh, industry history, most teams were actually pretty small, right? So, so if you're making a game in like 1981, the word indie has no meaning whatsoever, right? So there are like millions of people or thousands of people making kind of games on themselves and, and copying them on cassettes or floppies or something like this was just by kind of right. 
the way things were done. Right? And so even on console even, games, right? Sorry? Even even on console games, like you think about yeah. Atari and the number of Atari developers who are single developers that you probably never heard of because their credits aren't in the game. Yeah, exactly. Uh, unless they're hidden, but that's another story. Yeah, yeah, it's true. And so, so then you said the industry needs a certain size before people can start feeling that they're making a conscious choice by making a game themselves, right? I, so I quoted Noah Felstein, who'd been working on some of the early Indiana Jones games, about this idea that, that when he was making games at, back at that day, back in the at that time, there was no, he had no conception of making a choice to make a game on a small budget. Like people were just making video games in, in any way they could. And so it's, I say it's only really like the, the like late 1990s that people start talking about this need for an alternative, right? So by now the industry has become kind of so consolidated that it begins to feel like inauthentic, right? And, and you start feeling this need for like an authentic alternative. And then the question is just like, like what does that need? What, what is that, right? And that takes a long time to kind of figure out. And as I said, with the three different, different types of indie, that's kind of still being worked out. It's not something you, you kind of end, end with, right? But it also creates this problem in a way with authenticity that, that Julia Straub talks about this concept of the paradox, paradox of authenticity, right? So that uh, I, I had this example when I was in Finland, like uh, I think a year and a half ago, um, I saw there were these signs for Finnish saunas with this kind of, this kind of very glossy, authentic Finnish sauna sign, right? And so this is what, what Julia Straub calls the, the paradox of authenticity, right? That the more energy is spent on, on certifying or guaranteeing that something is authentic, the less authentic it seems, right? And then I think that you would say that's one of the, the kind of ongoing conflicts with, within kind of indie games, which is why can, can, can you be trying too hard to be making something that's, that's kind of strange or can you be, be spending too much time kind of certifying your indiness? Does that actually make you kind of inauthentic again, right? And so you could say that the, that's the problem with these kind of notions of authenticity is that they they can be very they very quickly lead to this idea of, of something kind of pure, like that you could be that kind of pure indie developer, and that then ends up being well, what is that? Is that well, you're just making the game like out of your own pocket? But then what does that mean? Are you supposed to have inherited money to to make an indie game? Like does this actually make kind of any kind of sense? So you get some of the kind of problems you have in say like the art world or like kind of imported that way, right? And so the other aspect of I think authenticity, I think is is uh, is something I think that video games have always struggled with, right? That that video games have always been seen as these kind of very technological and anonymous products, right? And so one of the one of the challenges for for independent games has been to kind of create a different way of talking about in the, uh, about games. And, and that's often in a way been based on a somewhat romantic idea of, of like the artist, right? And especially in the beginning, it was very much focused on like the kind of auteur, game designer, programmer, uh, like the kind of Jonathan Blows uh, of the world, for example, Phil, Phil Fish, right? So the, these stories about this kind of developer that makes a game from, from kind of passion, right? And you would say that that's also can, could be kind of also be a bit problematic in, in, in its own way. and. And I think, but one of the good things is perhaps there's been a bit of a more of a shift to more of a, a notion of a kind of collective, right? That actually, where you actually many different people playing uh, or making a game at the same time, right? Or, or together, right? And so I think you would say that the, I think the idea of the authentic game has clearly been a driving force. And it also always has this kind of dark side about this notion, there's a, always a possibility for this kind of infighting about who's kind of the purest kind of indie. And also that there's this kind of, awkward relation to to kind of nostalgia right so so when i talked about kind of visual styles like often visual styles in many independent games kind of refer back in time so and, and so that can shift a bit right so in the beginning it was like to kind of 1980s platform games and then i think it shifts there's, there's roughly like a 20-year window we're always going 20 years back in time so now we are at the at the kind of playstation one and and kind of like like 1990s uh, net art and, and and things like that, right? But then like, what's with all that nostalgia? And I think that that can be kind of little, little kind of disconcerting, right? This nostalgia has kind of few, has has both kind of good and bad aspects to it, right? So it can both be this kind of longing for at least perhaps a world that's less polluted. But well, of course, like I said, the U.S. just had a president, which in a way was just all about nostalgia, 
in, in a very kind of in a very kind of menacing way, right? So, so nostalgia is also kind of complex. The nostalgia that can be kind of part of the notion of authenticity. And so, so what I write in the book, in a way, is that I, I feel that that sometimes, in some way, I think the most positive, one of the most more positive aspects of the kind of idea of authenticity in indie games can be. So like the idea of diversity, because that actually is the one that feels kind of more forward looking. It's not just like trying to kind of, oh, oh, I remember when I had my Commodore 64 or something like it. It's or when I played like Super Mario for the first time, right? So the, the I think these issues of kind of diversity are the ones that kind of feel a bit more kind of forward looking. It makes sense. I mean, it's interesting then because in a lot of ways, you know, authenticity then is a kind of placeholder or, you know, a uh, floating signifier to use a more technical term or something where yeah. it can be really productive sometimes and it can be really unproductive just as nostalgia can be too and you you mentioned Lana Boyum's sort of distinction between uh restorative and reflective nostalgia yeah. um you can have nostalgia that's just trying to recreate old times which was certainly what I would say the make America great again was unfortunately mm. all about is still all about um and then on the other hand, you can have a kind of nostalgia that is more about critiquing the present and thinking through what it would mean to come next uh, or what could come next. And, uh, you know, one of the things that came to mind as you were talking, well, for one, uh, later today, uh, in one of those kinds of many paradoxes of the term indie, uh, Microsoft is going to have an indie showcase mm. uh, for both some of the studios they own, which is an interesting understanding of these are yeah, yeah. independent studios owned by Microsoft. Uh, and there's a whole question mark there, uh, but also a number of studios that they're supporting financially, but who maintain uh, economic independence, or at the very least they're independent in the sense that they are not owned by Microsoft and might not be able to do some of the really interesting projects that they're doing without some of that support. And you see things like uh, Xbox Game Pass being a really interesting platform supporting indies and i would argue actually you know circulating some really interesting indie games that don't always necessarily fit with yeah. a kind of cultural or aesthetic model but nonetheless are doing something experimental in the wider sense of that term and so it yeah. is interesting to think about you know the term that comes to mind uh is compromise right what happens you know because hmm. often authenticity is situated against compromise. It's about not compromising. And yeah. I think a number of really productive and interesting things happen there. But then of course you can always raise the bar for what counts as not com being compromised, right? If you're working with academia where you can like do really experimental games because you have a salary, for example, mm -hmm. right? Are you always already compromised? This is something I've thought about too as an academic. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure it's something you've probably had to think about as well. Um, but it's a tricky, it's a tricky question. Um, and, you know, I suppose uh, one of the ways that you bring up some of these questions uh, is in that eternal, sometimes eternally unfortunate debate about what counts as a game hmm. and about the way that on the one hand, this can be a quite a toxic thing and something that embodies the worst elements of, you know, what gets called toxic masculinity. I'm hmm. thinking of a situation like Gamergate, which often targeted folks like Zoe Quinn um, uh, for quote unquote, not making games, right? With a yeah. depression quest. Um, uh, but on the other hand, you also argue this can be quite productive, right? In that raising these questions uh, can ask what else can we do maybe that yeah. might not count as a game, uh, but produces an interesting interactive experience or that might stretch what we call a game. So I, I mm. wonder, do you see this as still being a productive question? Is this an ongoingly productive question? What counts as a game? I mean, so I think you can ask it in a few different ways, right? So one might be, uh, I like to do a kind of exercise with students where I kind of ask them to kind of enumerate their expectations for what a game is, and then you can kind of specify it down, right? So if you download a $10 game on your console, what would be really surprising? So, so, so often in the negative, I think that can be kind of interesting, right? So, 
So then it might be all right if it's if it's only like two minutes long and then you're done. That that would be like really surprising for a, a ten dollar download game and so on. And so so I think that that you can think about it this way. Like so, what what are the kind of expectations? What are the kind of things we take for given? And that can be a way of of, of coming up with with kind of new interesting interesting games. So so then yeah, could you do a two a game that only lasts two minutes? Well, perhaps actually you then you probably need to kind of build up. That they have perhaps it's a kind of ARG in a way you take turns and you get kind of two, so two two minutes two minutes worth of information you have to share it with everybody you could kind of imagine that, that and but that comes just, that comes out of saying like what would be surprising to you so I think to me it's uh, I mean there's a the different difference between being prescriptive and descriptive right so so I think often if you kind of describe your expectations it becomes easier to figure out what what you could do differently. And so, uh, but I think it, it is interesting, and also the way that elements of some some game players or gamers react very strongly to kind of experiments. Uh, this was also something I, I witnessed when I was writing about kind of casual games some years ago. That that some people seem to get really upset if a game had an easy mode, for example, and and it and it's sort of really, of course, it's like it's really bizarre. Like why? But then don't play it or don't choose easy mode. Like what? What's what's kind of really, really the issue here, right? And so, so I agree that that's that's been something that's like in casual games you might say was public, especially in relation to kind of women playing games. Mm -hmm. And then it, I think in in, in kind of gamer game it was a, a relation to kind of a more kind of diverse group of people making games about kind of different different subjects, right? And so it's interesting why that kind of cultural conservatism exists for some people. I mean, to me, it's, it seems a little similar. Like, I think I assume most of these people just don't, I, I would assume they don't like modern art or experimental literature. I think it's, to me, it seems like a kind of cultural conservatism that's also present in, in games, but it, it certainly kind of can feel like it's kind of more visible kind of in, in games for, for kind of some reason. And that's kind of, of course, really, really kind of painful, right? But I think one of the ways I talk about it and also when I interview people is, is this question, like when you do something experimental, like what's what's at stake or like what's what's the difference between calling it a game and not calling it a game, for example. And then I think that there's some there's a lot of interesting things to, to say about that in a way. I talk I use the word of performance a bit to talk about this. Like you make something and you you say this is a game and you you put it out in the world and that kind of it performs as a game in a sense, right? That kind of select certain kind of experience uh, expectations in people, and then you then you can kind of subvert those expectations and and thereby like uh, like it broaden the notion of what a game is and so on. And so I think that that's kind of pretty interesting, and that that's kind of very different from like calling something kind of like yeah like a test or a software tool or 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 net art or, or art or or anything like that virtual reality experience. So it's just also a way of thinking about like each of these has to have a certain have a certain set of set of expectations that they they kind of set up right, and then then I think to me actually there's a lot of the kind of subverting of expectations I find out often has a lot to say right so so like I I, actually, I discussed a depression quest because I felt nobody had actually discussed the the game design of a depression quest much much right. But it's it's one of those games where, where in a way in games you usually expect to be able to do stuff, right? But here here you're depressed, and there there are all these kind of obvious things you should be doing, but you can't because you're depressed. So 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 then it's kind of interesting, right? Like the the subversion of your of your expectations because they call it a game, right? The, those actually have very kind of strong effect, a very strong effect for saying something about that kind of psychological state. And to me, so that's kind of super interesting. And if it wasn't called a game, I don't think it would be that as quite as effective, or at least it would be mean something different, right? Uh, conversely, I, the funny thing that I, going, I was going back to, like the late 1990s, about this thing called hypertext fiction, which we today would call swine games. But at that time, I talked to some of the, uh, one of the people, like for him it had, in nine, the 1990s, it had been really, really important that it wasn't a game, right? Because the only way they could sell it to adults was to make it very clear that this was not a game, right? Otherwise, people would be putting it in the kids section, right? And so it had to do anything else, like electronic literature, hypertext fiction, anything else to signal that it wasn't a game. So, but that's just in a way that to say that, yeah, so, so the, the, 
the, the, the kind of expectations and the politics of when something is a game is just like super, super important, right? You know, one of the things I just want to flag for our audience, uh, one of the things I really appreciate about your book are these snippets of interviews that then you can sort of go to the website for the longer interviews. And one of my favorite moments is Natalie Lawhead talking about how upset she was to have her her performances or her internet art start being to be considered games. So it's also interesting to think about like resistance to becoming a game, right? Yeah, resistance yeah. to having your experiment, your artistic experiment translated into a game and i think there are different like contexts in which this back and forth on what counts as a game can affect folks right and i yeah. and i and i think you're right there's the question of difficulty uh this is of course always wrestled with with dark souls for example um and i have my own sort of vast ambivalence about that i would love the walking sim version of dark souls where i could just walk around the level design without having to hit anything um, oh yeah, yeah yeah but that's me um and i'm sure that would you know have a lot of people yelling saying but hit the vision the vision you know and that kind of auteur theory model of yeah. the uncorruptible vision of the artist um so i'm aware of our time and i want to make sure we get to a couple more uh questions and respect your time at the same uh time uh and so i wanted to ask you about the problem of video game preservation and the and telling the history of indie games and mm. you know i'm thinking of a few things one you know i mentioned uh the playstation 3 and ps vita stores are going down uh i'm not sure to what degree that's going to be a problem for certain kinds of indie games but there are these kind of larger scale indie games that are not going to be accessible in the same way mm. certain versions of them are no longer going to be accessible even things like that are quite popular like spelunky uh, yeah. uh, will not be accessible in the Vita form for a lot of people. Um, but I'm also thinking actually maybe one of the most radical sort of changes or losses that's happened recently are flash games, which people have made efforts yeah. to preserve, but they're no longer active in the same way they used to be. Yeah. And that, that's been a huge scene for indie games at a really important place where a lot of uh, indie game artists, indie game developers have started out. Mm. Um, so I, I wonder if you could speak to maybe some of the challenges of how do we preserve uh, indie games? What's at stake there? Even the kinds of indie games that are mostly show-based, right? That are mostly festival-based mm. indie games that might just disappear because the person that brought them to the games is just no longer able to financially support themselves or yeah. just not interested, maybe. I mean, so so you could part it. I, I guess it's interesting. Recently, I, I thought about like a positive spin on it. Right, to say that that like what what's the deal with all this preservation stuff would be the counter argument. Like so some of these things were just events, right? And so, so some events that kind of disappear in the stream of time. You might have some documentation of it, like you might have of an art performance or a music performance. That's perfectly fine. That might be like that would be like the optimal spin on some of it, right? So so some of these like very kind of elaborate. Uh, or perhaps clunky control all control games, which are also kind of performances. Perhaps it's in a way that's what they're meant to be. Perhaps it's it's actually fine. You can document, right? But I think in general, I think indie games for for a kind of funny reason are actually probably much better off than than a lot of other kind of game types, right? So you say a lot of AAA games have become like much more networked or multiplayer based. A lot of um, kind of mobile games. Kind of disappear on app stores that they no longer they run on, on kind of versions of ios that kind of no longer exist and kind of stuff and it's kind of really really painful to to kind of get it going and so there's something that characterizes a lot of indie games is i think there's been a lot of focus on the idea of the work right so so indie games are often often don't have a lot of dlc they're often not kind of online multiplayer so I think indie games are probably characterized by being fairly easy to, to preserve because they're often kind of kind of downloads that you can actually store, right? And so, so why is that? And a few reasons. Of course, it's, it's expensive to run servers and this kind of stuff, but definitely the idea of the kind of them being kind of works have have like have definitely, I think, kind of influenced the way that they're made. And so so the dominant, the dominant business model in mobile games are definitely like microtransactions, right? But the dominant model. In, in indie games, it's like pay once. It's the pay once model. Right? Hmm. And so, so because I think that's, that's the one that people feel kind of comfortable with or feel is kind of artistic. So, so I think by 
I think it's still true that no major independent game festival has ever awarded a game based on microtransactions. So, so, so there's something, so, so, which also I think is a kind of some, somewhat kind of romantic notion that's just kind of part of the independent games, which, which kind of incidentally makes preservation easier. Right. I mean, it's interesting, you know, the kinds of studios that can do things like mobile games are either need to be very large or they can also be very small. Yeah. But in either case, you have, <laughs> it's usually those two extremes, but in either case, you have this kind of like integration of the financial element directly into the game. Whereas, of course, if you're an indie game, oftentimes what you want to do is get that out of the way with as quickly as possible and find a way mm -hmm. to kind of bracket off the financial question as quickly as possible. Unless that's the point of your game, right? Unless your game, for example, is like phone story and part of what you're doing, in fact, is highlighting economic conditions of yeah. mobile devices that, in fact, you know, are the basis for these games. Um, so I think maybe uh, the last couple of questions I want to ask and I try to combine, uh, which is since the book's been published, which was 2019, so it's not that long ago, um, but, you know, you we write these things over years and then we get to mm -hmm. the point where we're like putting it out and we're thinking of all of these things we might have added or might have done. Uh, so I'm curious if you see any trends that are emerging in the concept or in the empirical sort of life of indie games, the material mm -hmm. life of indie games uh, that you wish you could have got in the book or that maybe emerged after the book came out. Uh, that are interesting to you? And then I guess the other question that's kind of related to that is, is there a direction? And I know this is asking you to be a little prescriptive mm. rather than descriptive, but is there a direction that you would love to see indie games go in more? Thing, something you would love to see them do more? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, so, so I think perhaps the easiest answer to that question is, is I do think there's this kind of 20 year window that I'm also referring to in the book that 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 things that are, are uh, 20 years old, you can incorporate, right? So you couldn't, you couldn't really do a game that looks like a PlayStation 3 game. Now that, that would like super, be super weird, right? But you can look at, you can make a game that looks like a PlayStation 1 or perhaps a PlayStation 2 game. That, that's actually fine, right? So it has to be, there has to be a kind of temporal distance that's, that makes it clear that you make, have, have made a deliberate design choice. Otherwise it just doesn't work, right? So I think, so you see that, that kind of happens automatically. Right. The second thing I think is that there's still less, I mentioned this briefly, this kind of shift toward the collective mode or whatever you might call that, that I think, especially some of these ideas of like the art form or the auteur were kind of imported but from film, right? Where, where often you assume there's this kind of one person, like the director, which is the one that, that kind of from, from which all the creativity flows, which obviously I, I know some film people is, is also kind of wrong, right? So, so like imagine like 2001 without the set design or something, it's kind of absurd, right? And so, so you could say that I, I, think, I think it's a positive thing that, that I think people are moving a bit away from this idea that it has to be like one person. They can acknowledge that you're actually different people and, and they all have kind of have, have um, contributions. Um, I also see this a bit, so like with a game like Mutashone, which also has a bit of these kind of different ideas of storytelling. So not so much about a hero, but a bit more of a, a, about a, an, like the ensemble cast and these kind of different ideas, not so much like the, the kind of like the, the, the hero story, but other kinds of stories. So I think that that kind of collective thing, I think definitely is, a, is something that's happening. And then also see a bit more of this kind of focus on, on kind of care and, and self-care, which I think you can argue it comes from the kind of queer community in some way. Like you, like see a game like um, like a short hike. I think it's also it's a bit more about like kind of relaxing in a way. In a way, I think that that's a kind of interesting, uh, kind of interesting trend. Um, then I think also there's been like there was this whole idea of empathy games, which is kind of controversial by now. This this idea that you could play a game and learn about something or or some particular kind of community. And that's, that's a kind of controversy about, about that, whether that's also kind of too cheap to assume that, that you can play a game for 10 minutes and then like deeply understand someone. So I think that's like a kind of controversy or a discussion that's playing out. Then I see the kind of, yeah, the net art and the kind of glitchy stuff kind of coming in. Uh, yeah, we mentioned Natalie Lawhead's games, but also a, a recent game like, like Nightmare Temptation Academy, right? Uh, and then I also think there's, uh, there's something which is kind of institutional in a different way. You have larger publishers like uh, Annapurna and, and, and Devolver, which become these kind of quality 
kind of indie labels for, for things which are not exactly like one person kind of spare time projects, but which are kind of solid and often kind of pretty interesting kind of games in the indie space, which actually have kind of interesting stories in them and, and around them and so on. So, so those are the, I think those are the kind of things that I, I see kind of happening. Uh, I'm not sure what I kind of wish for, <laughs> for indie games. Um, I, I guess I wish that, that people, <laughs> well, people that people accept that there's, there's no one true indie game or true anti-indie game or something like that. I think, yeah, so the idea of kind of trying to figure out what's kind of true and real and authentic is important, but also I think it's just important to accept that there is no kind of end goal. You don't get to this final, perfect, authentic games, right? But things also change and, and so on. Yeah, but also I think perhaps I, what I, I think hopefully is happening is also like some of the kind of romantic imports of, of, of the idea of the romantic artists, I, I think the, more, the ones that are most problematic, like both this idea that it should be one person or that might be one particular kind of person that fits the bill as romantic artist, but also this idea that, that while we want to be authentic, that it's also clear that people have to kind of make a living, right? So, so you can't really make these kind of demands that there should be no money involved in the games because then they're like, well, how are people going to kind of put food on the table if, if you don't want that? But I, so, so I think that I, I think there has to be a recognition that, that yeah, artists deserve to get paid too, right? And that applies to kind of, kind of indie games and, and definitely that these kind of romantic artist ideas haven't been particularly helpful in that, in that respect. I think that's a great place to end talking about the difficulty of endings and the difficulty of, you know, wrapping things up in a nice little bow. Yes, thank you so much for your time. And thank you, Christian. Talking to you.